Hey, I want to say welcome to Ignite. My name is Chase, one of the pastors here. Really glad you could be here with us this morning. Before we dive into the text in Matthew this morning, I want to draw your attention to a resource for you and your family. Uh, our team put together a series handout through Matthew 8 and 9. This accompanies our series that we're covering uh, this spring through the uh, sections 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9 of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you want to dig deeper uh, into your study in Matthew, maybe as a family uh, or for your devotional time, I want to encourage you to pick up one of these series handouts. It, it unpacks in greater detail the sermon content that you receive on a Sunday morning. Uh, you can pick up a physical copy at the welcome table on your way out or get a digital copy by visiting our website, ignitechurchfm.com forward slash Matthew. We are in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're taking our time, making our way through it. It's going to span the better part of two to three years going through this Gospel. Uh, we believe that the life of Jesus is completely and totally worth studying. Uh, we believe Jesus was not just a good man who walked this earth, but he was indeed the God-man who came to live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death in your place, and then rise again to give new life to all who would believe in him. Jesus is worthy of studying. All of human history climaxes in the person and work of Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew is one of four biographies of Jesus' life. Right? And it shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all of human history. And this spring, we're zeroing in, we're focusing on chapters 8 and 9 of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, chapters 8 and 9 follows what is the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. That's the Sermon on the Mount, right? And Jesus uh, brought the kingdom in word. He taught on the realities of the kingdom as he formed this new ethic for his followers and for the kingdom of God. If he brought the kingdom in word in Matthew 5 through 7, you could think of the next section, chapters 8 and 9, as Jesus bringing the kingdom in action, Jesus brings the kingdom in action, not just in word. Right? We see this throughout Matthew 8 and 9. Jesus heals all people without distinction. Jesus hangs out with the social outcasts that the religious leaders would uh, deem unbearable and ridiculous. Jesus brings the kingdom to all people. He heals the sick and he cleanses the unclean and he restores the broken. And Matthew 8 and 9 isn't just like your kitchen junk drawer of miracles of Jesus. It's actually really intentionally designed. Uh, Matthew 8 and 9 follows this pattern where there are uh, three accounts of Jesus healing people and then one account of Jesus teaching on the kingdom. And this cycle repeats three times. Jesus heals, Jesus heals, Jesus heals, then he teaches. Right? Three healings and a teaching, three healings and a teaching. And today we arrive on the first of these series of, of teaching, right? Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and we're going to look at the cost of the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22, otherwise it'll be also on the screen behind me. Read with me, Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's the cost of the kingdom. In 2010, uh, billionaire investor and entrepreneur Mark Cuban was approached by a small startup company seeking an investment. Right in 2010, they offered Mark a piece of their business at a roughly $2 million valuation. So he said, Mark, if you give me $200,000, you can have 10% of this small startup. Well, Cuban, that's like pocket change for a billionaire like him. He still said no. Uh, he said, this business is high risk and medium reward at best. He said, I would not dare touch a company like this at a $2 million valuation. Well, fast forward nine years, October 2019, this small startup that approached Mark Cuban and was turned down uh, closed out their October quarter with a public uh, value of $49 billion. This small startup company is called Uber. You might have heard about it. And Mark Cuban today calls that missed investment the biggest miss of his lifetime. Somebody say amen. That's a big miss. <laughs> Economists would call this principal opportunity cost. Opportunity cost. And the principle is this. When you are trying to make an informed decision, uh, especially with your finances, you should not only calculate the initial cost, but also the opportunity cost. Or maybe I could say it this way. When making an informed decision, you should not only calculate what must initially be given, but also what might be eventually gained. So Mark Cuban says $2 million for evaluation on this company is way too steep. That's the cost. But what was his missed opportunity cost? Well, he could have had 10% in a company valued at $49 billion. It's opportunity cost that was missed. In the same way, when Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God, he addresses the reality that the kingdom is very costly. But if we're going to make an informed decision about whether or not we should give our lives to following the Christ of this kingdom, we should not only think in initial cost, what must initially be given to be part of this kingdom, but also think in terms of opportunity cost. What might be eventually gained that I could miss if I don't accept the invitation to follow Jesus? This is the cost of the kingdom, and we understand that the cost of the kingdom is great. We're going to see in a few moments that the cost of the kingdom costs something. It's very costly. It's substantially costly. The cost of the kingdom is great, but its reward is greater. And it's my prayer today that every person in this room, regardless of your religious background, regardless of where you find yourselves in relationship with the Lord today, regardless of your financial status, regardless of your cultural heritage, it's my prayer 
that the words of Jesus would take root in your heart and transform your mind, and that you would truly count the cost of following Jesus. The cost of the kingdom is great, but its reward is grateful. Its reward is great. We see first in verses 18 through 20 the discomfort of the kingdom. Verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go on over to the other side. How many of you know that Jesus' miracles, Jesus' ministry was very attractive to onlookers? Right? I mean, just, just think about this, reflect on this with me for a moment. Jesus was traveling Palestine, Galilee and Judea, Samaria, and he was offering free health care. He was giving free food. He didn't have to cook. And he was traveling the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That's attractive. Every millennial in this room, you're following Jesus. Right? Free health care, free food, walking along the shore. Like, you're in. So naturally, it, it attracts a crowd. People are attracted to this free health care. People are attracted to the food, the charisma surrounding the person and work of Jesus. It's early on in Jesus' ministry. They like what he is doing. But then in Matthew 8, 18-22, he gives a very difficult teaching as he sees the crowd around him. Why? Because Jesus looks to not just create hype, but he looks to create true disciples that are willing to count the cost of following him. You have to understand that the followers of Jesus, the core inner circle of 12 disciples that followed Jesus throughout his three years of ministry, most of them, after Jesus ascended into heaven, gave their lives as martyrs for the person of Jesus and the testimony of his work. Jesus wasn't looking to build a popular stigma in a crowd. Jesus was looking to make disciples to build the church at this point in his ministry. And so in verse 19, we see Jesus teaching a difficult truth about the devastating cost of the kingdom. He says, a scribe came up to Jesus and said, teacher, rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, so someone who is part of the crowd, attracted to the ministry and work of Jesus, says, you know what, I think I've seen enough, I want to follow him. And it's amazing that a scribe would approach Jesus. Here's what you need to know about scribes. They were uh, Jewish religious leaders. They were leaders in the Jewish religion. Uh, they were well-educated uh, in the Old Testament. And in law, they often presided over civil law-breaking trials. They acted as mediators and judges. And the scribes of Jesus' day would have traced their lineage and identity back to the man in the Old Testament, Ezra. You can read all about Ezra, who was a scribe who came after the great exile and prepared the way for uh, Jesus to come 400 years prior to Jesus' coming. You can read about that. Uh, but as we understand the role of the scribes in Ezra, it says that Ezra was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses. And then Ezra, I believe it's chapter 7, says that these scribes would do three things. They would study the law, 
they would obey or do the law, and then they would teach the law to Israel. So scribes knew the law inside and out. Scribes were the religious leaders of the day. And ultimately we find out that the scribes were on the forefront of the planning committee that led to Jesus' false trial and crucifixion. The scribes were opposed to Jesus. They thought Jesus was coming to undo or abolish all of the Old Testament law and history. And so they saw Jesus as a threat to their status and their position in Israel. Yet a scribe, educated beyond belief, who despises Jesus and the work that he is doing to infiltrate Judaism, approaches Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. It's my conviction that the good news of the person and work of Jesus is for all kinds of people, every person without distinction. It doesn't matter whether you're an invalid or whether you're intellectual. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your social status. Jesus is good news for all people. The fact that a scribe would come to Jesus, shows that Jesus truly is good news for all different types of people. And so after the scribe says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus confronts him. He tests him. In verse 20, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. And so Jesus addresses this scribe and says, are you really sure you want to follow me? Because if you look out into the field, see those foxes that are just wandering around aimlessly? They have a place to go at night. And if you lift your eyes and look at the birds of the sky, the creatures that God created, even they have a nest to retreat to and start a family. But the Son of Man, Jesus, has, has nowhere to lay his head. What's Jesus saying? I think Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to be uncomfortable. The discomfort of the kingdom is very real. The New Testament often talks about the discomfort of the kingdom, but it talks about it with a stronger word, and this word is suffering. Right? The New Testament theme of suffering is all throughout the Gospels and into the rest of the New Testament. I believe it's some 84 times the word suffering is mentioned in the New Testament alone. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus teaches on the discomfort and the suffering that comes with the kingdom. He says this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, discomfort, suffering. But take heart, I've overcome the world. We read in the book of Acts, the founding and beginnings of the early church, that the earliest Christians understood that the Christian life would be one of suffering and discomfort and tribulation. In Acts 14, verse 22, it says, The message of the apostles was one that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Here's the reality. If you're a follower of Jesus, either you have suffered in the past, you are suffering presently, or you will suffer eventually. This is the reality of the cost of the kingdom. What about you? Are you suffering today? Can you look back at 2019 and say that was a year marked by anguish and suffering? Or maybe you're looking on the horizon and saying, yeah, the trajectory of my marriage is one where there's going to be some real suffering in this family because we're not doing what we're called to do. The cost of the kingdom is great. And Jesus teaches us to expect this. The Christian life, the kingdom of God, is marked by suffering. It's marked by discomfort. And it's through the trial, it's through the difficulty, it's through the suffering that our faith is made complete or perfect, James chapter 1 says. It's where God proves that we are his sons because he disciplines those whom he loves. The kingdom of God is one of discomfort. It's one of great suffering. It's costly. The kingdom of God is not only uncomfortable and marked by suffering, but we read in verses 21 through 22 that the kingdom of God is one of sacrifice. Verse 21, another one of the disciples, this isn't referring to the 12 apostles, we don't know this disciple's name, disciple simply means student, pupil, or follower. So another one of the followers said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Lord, let me first go and bury my father, this disciple said to Jesus. This was a popular turn of phrase in Jesus' day. Uh, when someone in your family was suffering uh, or pronounced dead, they would say, I need to go and bury my father. It was a great uh, religious ceremony that surrounded the burial and honoring of, of the, the, the dead. And we don't know for sure in this passage whether this disciple or would-be disciple's father was dead or just close to dead and really suffering. The text doesn't make it clear. One of two things. If this potential disciple's father was indeed dead, we know that the father would have died probably within the last 24 hours. And we know that because Jesus was teaching in a desert. Right? It's the modern day Arabian Peninsula. Uh, it's Palestine of old. And they experienced temperatures of warmth that we could only dream of in January in the Midwest. Right? So look, at, after 24 hours, if the body's not yet buried, uh, it's going to start to decay very quickly and cause a terrible stench. So what they did was they buried within 24 hours. It was the common practice throughout Palestine. So if this man's father was dead, we can assume it was within the last 24 hours. And maybe, just maybe, this would-be disciple 
heard that Jesus was in his region, heard that Jesus can perform miracles, heard that Jesus is the comforter of those who mourn, and maybe desperately went to Jesus seeking a miracle for his father or seeking comfort that transcends what the world can offer and that comes from the creator God through Christ. Maybe that's the case. Or maybe the father was very ill and death was in the horizon. And so the son is saying, look, Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me stay with my father because I want to make sure I can see to it that he receives a proper burial. I need to make sure that the inheritance is passed according to his will. I need to make sure the house is in order. So let me stay and then I'll come and find you and then I'll follow you. And here's what Jesus responds to in verse 22. What does he say? He says, follow me. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not advocating for family dishonor. Jesus was a a good Uh, Jewish man, Jesus would have read the same Old Testament that you and I read today. Jesus conveys the father heart of God to all people. Jesus is not advocating for dishonoring family. Instead, Jesus is prioritizing the urgency and priority of following him. Let me say that again. Jesus is not advocating for dishonor, but he's emphasizing the priority and urgency of discipleship. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is saying to this would-be disciple, look, your father will be taken care of. Follow me. He says, follow me. That's the priority of discipleship. This is the cost and sacrifice of the kingdom. Jesus, discerning his motives and discerning his heart, knew this man's idols and knew that this man was simply making an excuse and would never truly abandon all to follow Jesus with all that he had. Just follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus knows our idols. Idols, you know, those good things that God gives us that we often turn into God things in our life. Idols. Those aspects of our life we're not willing to give over to God. Those places in our heart that we're not willing to relinquish to God. The Bible's terminology for that is idolatry. Jesus knows our idols. Jesus knew this man's idols. A similar conversation that Jesus had was in Mark chapter 10 with someone uh, titled the rich young ruler. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do not lie. Do not steal the The rich man says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth, but what must I do? 
And Jesus says to this rich young man, go sell all that you have and follow me. And Mark chapter 10 says the rich young man walked away from Jesus for he had great possessions. This is a similar encounter that Jesus has with this would-be disciple. I don't know if it's security for you, if it's money for you, if it's productivity. Maybe it's family. These good things that God has blessed us with that get in the way of complete allegiance to Jesus. That's idolatry. Jesus says simply, follow me. Follow me. The cost of the kingdom is great, but its reward is greater. The kingdom of God is costly, yes. But its reward is greater because the reward of the kingdom of God and the inheritance for the people of God is eternal. And so I want to close by giving you five New Testament passages of Scripture that talk about the promise of the kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom is costly, but what about the opportunity cost? Right? If, if we say no to Jesus today, if we reject the king of the kingdom of God today, what are we going to give up in so doing in the future? And here's what these five verses teach us about the promise of the kingdom, the opportunity, the inheritance of the kingdom of God. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the trying of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness leads to perfection and completion so that you may lack nothing. Here's what James says, the promise of the kingdom of God, the suffering that comes with the cost of the kingdom of God, makes sense of our suffering. I need you to get that. The kingdom of God makes sense of the suffering in this world. I was having a conversation with uh, someone just out in the community, and we were talking about God. They know that I'm a pastor, and they're saying, you know, my one hang-up for following God is all the bad things that have happened to me and my family. I just can't make sense of there being a God if all these bad things are allowed to happen. And I simply got to respond and share with her, the fact that there is a God shows that there's a purpose to the suffering. No suffering is pointless. God is orchestrating how many things? All things. God is moving human history to its ultimate culmination where God will make right eventually all that is wrong in the world. The kingdom of God makes sense of our suffering. That's the premise of James chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 says that we are receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken. World rulers will rise and fall. Wars will continue to be fought to no avail. Suffering will continue to happen. This world will continue to digress, yet 
the kingdom of God transcends all of those things and is a kingdom that can never be shaken. In Colossians 1.13, it says of those who are part of the kingdom that we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. If we're part of the kingdom, if we've counted the cost of the kingdom of God, church, you need to understand that you are not an orphan. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You're not a burnout. Instead, you are an adopted child of the most high king of God. It is the greatest news in the world that we can be called children of God. Revelation 5.10, believers, that's you and me who placed our trust in Jesus. It's said that we have been made a kingdom of priests to God and will reign with his son Jesus. We will be appointed to rule and reign as adopted sons of God with Christ. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. I want to I read this in its entirety as we conclude. It says this of the promise of the kingdom. But you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is the promise of the kingdom of God. The cost of the kingdom is great, but its reward is greater because its reward is eternal. I need you to get that. I need you to be able to say with the Apostle Paul that these momentary trials and sufferings are like nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And for those who are suffering today, I need you to understand, I need you to get that you are not walking alone. You're walking with the God of the universe caring for you. Maybe for those of you that say, I'm walking in a season of joy and praise God, I want to rejoice with you. But when that season of suffering comes, I also need you to look to Jesus, who is no stranger to suffering, but, but what? Entered into our suffering by taking on human form. Counting equality with God is not a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant. Went faithfully and obediently unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus is acquainted with your suffering. Jesus did not just teach about the suffering in the kingdom of God but he experienced the suffering that came with the kingdom of God. Would you close with me in prayer?